Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. What follows is the service from October 3rd, 2021. Thank you. God bless. Be present with us now as we enter a time of worship. 
We ask that you fill this community with your spirit and that you open our eyes to your truth. It's in your son's name we pray. Psalms 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there is anyone who understands, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. But the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be, be glad. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning with the prayer of confession. We confess that we too are a people who say there is no God. On days when we are overcome with the evil in the world and when we are filled with worry and dread and forget that our trust is in you, on these days we say there is no God. And also on days when we get to the end of the day and we are proud of our own accomplishments and all that we have done and we revel in that pride, on these days we also say there is no God for our trust is in ourselves and not in you. And on days when we make all the distractions that this world offers our small gods, when we are distracted by technology and by pleasures, and also by our jobs and the worries of the day. On these days, we also say there is no God. We bring these things before you, and we confess that we are a people who sometimes are unbelieving. But we also pray that you will restore us like you promised to restore the Israelites, that you would continually remind us that you are here with us in this world, walking with us through the pain and through the pleasure and help us to turn our eyes to you and always remember that you are here with us every day. We pray for those who are sick and suffering, for those in cancer treatments, for those who are um, recovering from COVID and also those who are still sick and, and in the hospital and who are just um, suffering through this illness. We pray that you would be with all of those. We also pray for the poor um, and, the, and you know, the underserved, those on the margins in this world, especially we remember all of the Haitians and other immigrants who are coming um, from the Caribbean and from South America on that perilous journey. And we just, we just pray that you will be with that people. And we pray for the Afghans also who are who are slowly, some of them coming into the United States, we pray that there will be welcoming and that they will find some peace and refuge from their trials and tribulations. Lord, we are so grateful that you are a God who continually seeks us day after day despite our sins and despite the fact that we often turn away from you. We again pray that you will be with us and that you will show us your blessings and that we will turn to you each day. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. It's so good to see everyone this morning. A couple of housekeeping notes uh, as I begin. We are in the process of, of getting more names for all different roles we have here at Ackland. Everything from leading prayer and reading scripture to being an usher. Justin, you did a great job this morning as an usher. Well done. With Caroline as, as your, your wing there. So 
Paul has printed more forms and they're on the back table. And we encourage you to fill one of those out and then we'll give that to Clark and Clark will put that on our monthly assignments. We have new families that have never met Clark and Jenna. We're just in such an interesting phase here because COVID's been going on for a year and a half. And so we have different folks making different decisions based on their family needs, but then we have new people coming, but someday, they haven't told me when, but someday it'll all be over. And, uh, and we'll all be together, and you're going to love meeting Clark and Jenna. And, and they had their baby van, what, a month into this process? But anyway, hope you can fill out one of those forms this morning. Also want to tell you that, uh, as was announced last Sunday, Bill Crouch turned 95 on Wednesday. For those of you that don't know the Crouches, they were leaders here for years and years and years and moved to assisted living in Franklin about three years ago. And I emailed some with Fran this week. They're under quarantine currently. She thinks they get out tomorrow. Bill is mostly confined to a wheelchair these days. Uh, we're allowed to visit them if we schedule that or vaccinated. And uh, what I would encourage you, if you want to go see them, try to try to do it the next month or so while the weather's nice. Um, but I, I would encourage you to, to go do that. Um, what else did I want to say? I was gone twice in September. You may wonder what I was doing. Um, I got the opportunity to go back and connect with both of my former congregations. Labor Day weekend, I went up to the Hartford, Connecticut area to a congregation I first served at. And then last week, I was at the Smyrna Church of Christ in Smyrna, Tennessee. It was connecting with them. Uh, and that was really enjoyable to reconnect. Uh, and really appreciated Leonard preaching last week. I know his wife Holly was with him. She just came out with a book, Raising Resilient Children which I anticipate is going to be a book we're going to talk about some here at Ackland. But anyway, I want to get those housekeeping notes out of the way. This morning is the last of the unusual sermons. We'll be back to normal sermons next week. Grab a bolt and we're going to do our reading together in just a second. And I'll begin like this. In his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson writes this. One sunny afternoon when he wasn't feeling well, Jobs sat in the garden behind his house and reflected on his death. He talked about his experiences in India about four decades earlier, his study of Buddhism, and his views on reincarnation and spiritual transcendence. I'm about 50-50 on believing in God, he said. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than meets the eye. He admitted that as he faced death, he might be overestimating the odds out of a desire to believe in an afterlife. I'd like to think that something survives after you die, he said. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this wisdom and experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. He fell silent for a very long time. But on the other hand, Perhaps it's like an on-off switch, he said. Click, and you're gone. And then he paused again and smiled slightly. Maybe that's why I never like to put on-off switches on Apple devices. <laughs> As his death loomed, the visionary Steve Jobs envisioned the afterlife. And he says he was 50-50 on believing in God. Perhaps you've been there. Perhaps you felt conflicted, maybe even felt torn. Mark's gospel tells us the story of a similar experience. A man who comes to Jesus and in essence says, I think I'm about 50-50 on believing in all this. So let's do that reading together. If you would stand with me, our gospel reading from Mark 9 is in your bulletin. And feel free to join with me in the bold section if you would like. Mark 9, 14 through 29. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. The man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, 
Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, together, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, This kind can come out only by prayer. This is God's word, and you may be seated. So a few weeks ago, um, I expressed my desire to reflect on some big picture cultural streams in our society. And as for us to consider embracing the identity of exile that we see in the scriptures and becoming, becoming resigned to the fact that we will never completely, completely fit into the categories of this world until Jesus returns. Get comfortable with always being uncomfortable. <laughs> We're never going to completely fit in. And I warned us about the two great temptations of our age. Christian nationalism and secular humanism. I preached on Christian nationalism two weeks ago, and this morning I'd like to address secular humanism. In connecting with our previous scripture, for those of us who struggle with belief in God, secular humanism can be a very great temptation. What is secular humanism? What is it that we're talking about this morning? Secular humanism is a framework that rejects supernatural, divine, spiritual, and religious accounts of reality. It looks to science and philosophy, but not theology. So it looks to science and, the and philosophy, but not theology. With the goal of seeking and promoting human flourishing. And I'll use the phrase human flourishing a lot, but it's basically like humans... Uh, coming to terms with what is best for them and, and the best design for all, not just for individuals, but for all. It seeks meaning, significance, and community through measurable means. Therefore, it practices a default suspicion towards mystery and the immeasurable. It embraces the physical and practices a rejection or at least the suspicion towards the metaphysical. And by metaphysical, we mean beyond physical, like spiritual, that type of thing. So how is this different from agnosticism or atheism? In some ways, it's simply a rebranding. Those terms find their framing in the negative. So an atheist, I don't believe in God, an agnostic, I don't believe I can know if there's a God, and they're framed negative. And for those of us that prefer to frame things in the positive than the negative, and I'm one of those type of people, secular humanism is framed in the positive. So you believe humans flourish best when, when pursuing a secular way of living. So it's, it's framed in the past. So a little over 20% of Americans are non-religious. And many of these would be secular humanists, uh, but not all. And I believe many more Americans function as secular humanists, uh, even if we have some cultural window dressing of Christianity or another faith, it's very similar to Jennifer's prayer this morning. Um, you know, she reads the psalm, those who say there is no God are fools. And I'm like, oh, who are we talking about this morning? And then the prayer's like, oh, we're talking about us because it's easy. You say you believe in God, but then your actions differ. So I think there's a lot of people that would not say they're secular humanists, but they function that way. And I probably function that way sometimes too, right? I mean, it's a very alluring temptation. Those that cling to the nostalgia of faith, but it doesn't shape how we live. Those that don't pursue flourishing through faith, but through a secular means. So what's an example of this? 
and I'm, I'm about to go out on shaky ground because I'm going to criticize Disney. Okay, so everybody settle down first. I have Disney Plus. I think there's some good to Disney. I'm not saying you can't. Kids, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying you can't watch Mandalorian. Okay. Well, if it's too violent, your parents don't. See, I've already messed up here. I've already messed up here. Okay. So, in conceptualizing what secular humanism is, Disney would function, I'm not saying Disney's promoting secular humanism, but Disney would function on the secular humanist level. And what do I mean by that? Consider the movies you grew up on and the movies you still watch. Some might have vague levels of spirituality, but most do not. And they present non-theistic, secular stories, right? And most of them are stories we love, except when they kill off the parents, right? Okay. We gravitate to them because they tell stories of human flourishing. They present values that we like. And for the most part, we do think humans would flourish better if we pursued the values that we see in Frozen or Moana or Beauty and the Beast, whatever it is, right? Um, but we look at those things and we have, through a Christian lens, we have to say, those, those may be good stories, but they're incomplete stories. Because if taken, if that's the complete story, then it's a secular humanist story. But there's more to it. Because Christians, I'll say more, we don't believe humans can reach the highest levels of human flourishing without Jesus. Okay, what's another example? Another example is a TV show that won a bunch of Emmys last week. This is the Apple TV show Ted Lasso, which features an American football coach that becomes a British soccer coach. Okay, and he... In the show, uh, played by Jason Sudeikis, he's an admirable human being. He, um, in our cynical, sarcastic world, he's just incredibly positive, right? And everybody wants to be around him. And he has a refreshing look, and he models forgiveness, and he brings people together. But there's, there's no spiritual framework. There's no theistic framework. He's, um, you know, he's the quintessential Secular humanist, basically. And he's incredibly likable. That's what makes it a good temptation. Okay? I'm not saying we should go out and wage war against secular humanists. I'm saying we need to recognize it's an incomplete story. It's an incomplete telling of reality. Because it's only a slight leap from saying human flourishing can happen without God to then saying human flourishing happens best without God, to then saying religious frameworks are a detriment to human flourishing. And that's what so many in our world today are saying. They're saying it's not even neutral, like spiritual thinking is a negative. Specifically, the great monotheistic traditions, and obviously we're Christians, saying it's a negative towards human flourishing. And we hear the critique and yet we resist it. For it directly contradicts the words of Jesus. John 10.10 10, where he says, I came that they might have life and have it to the full. Jesus came for our human flourishing. And the path he presents takes us to that. So let's dig a little deeper into what's going on within a secular type of framework. And once again, by secular we mean non-spiritual, non-theistic type of thing. So the secular framework has two main qualities. It's haunted by imminence, and it has a posture of doubt towards the transcendence. And I apologize for the fancy words this morning. Imminence is something that is close, reliable, and explainable. Transcendence is something that is far off, beyond us, and oftentimes unexplainable. Imminence has no mystery. Transcendence has deep, deep mystery. It even relishes mystery. And Christianity has always tried to hold imminence and transcendence together. The incarnation of Jesus shows us that the transcendent God becomes imminent in the flesh of Jesus. And these two things come together. Baptism and communion are practices of holding on to imminence and transcendence together. It's just water, and yet it's the blood of Christ, right? It's just the bread and the cup, but yet it's the body of Jesus. It's both imminent and transcendent at the same time. In contrast, secular humanism rejects transcendence. 
It harbors a posture of suspicion towards the transcendent because it often reflects immeasurable mystery. It rejects the need for the metaphysical in finding meaning and purpose. You don't need a spiritual framework to find meaning in this way of thinking. It believes you can find it nearby. And uh, it's, it's hard for us to completely wrap our minds around how prevalent the suspicious and the doubtful posture is. But isn't that the great ethos of our age? Suspicion and doubt. And secular humanism admits that, even, even raises it up as a value um, within the framework. So some describe this as, as a dome effect. So I did a Disney reference, which gives me permission to now do a sports reference. Okay. Um, consider... Consider ballparks, specifically like baseball, football. Starting in the 1970s, technology led to the creation of, of domes. Okay, so Justin, the Astrodome, Justin's told me stories of going to that, the Kingdome, the Superdome. So it's a dome field, so you, you don't have to sit outside in the summer, right? You can have air conditioning for your, your sporting event. Uh, of course, grass doesn't grow inside, okay, at least not easily. And so what did they create? AstroTurf and all kinds of synthetic type of playing fields. And on, at first, it's an incredibly exciting technological development. We can play ball without worrying about the unpredictable, even dangerous weather. And everything is curated to our tastes. We can play at 70 degrees year round. But yet, eventually, you start to miss grass. <laughs> and you, you realize you kind of had good memories of, of rain and weather and the time you it was super hot, but you all ate ice cream, or it was super cold, but you bundled together to root for your favorite team. And you kind of get nostalgia for the old waves, uh, which, which led to a lot of rejection of those ballparks and the reclamation of outdoor ballparks in the 90s. When the roof is closing, and the transcendence is kept out, all you have is what's under the dome. And at first it's seen as an achievement, but over time you wonder, is this all there is? And are we missing something that is above the dome, but we've now closed the dome? And that is the haunting of imminence. There's a great line that the agnostic author Julian Barnes, where he says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. To me, it's such a beautiful line. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And that reflects the haunting of imminence. This deep desire, one that says, I really logically don't think there's anything more, but oh my goodness, I wish there was. And it reminds me of an NPR story some years ago I heard where an atheist who was very clear that he didn't believe in God would go to church every Sunday because he loved the hymns and the hymns spoke to him and they said is it just the music of the hymns or is it the message and he confessed it wasn't just the music there was a message within the hymns that spoke to him but it was an illogical type of speaking he didn't know how to place it and so he was an atheist that went to church every Sunday that is the haunting that happens in the imminent frame so how does a secular humanist find meaning and purpose. It often happens through a remaking of Jesus's first and second commandment. So in this framework, the first commandment is not to love God. The first commandment is to love yourself with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that the goal is not narcissism, right? But it's this idea that the first thing I need to do as a healthy human is to look in the mirror and love myself and value myself and put myself first. And then it's just the whole self-respect, healthy self, you be you, you know, all those type of things that make good, good t-shirts and those things that you're like, I totally believe in that motto until I don't, you know what I mean? It's like these mottos that depends on the situation, right? And then out of that, the second commandment is similar to Christianity because it is love your neighbor as yourself, but it is first loving yourself so that you then know how to love and then you can pass on the love that you have for yourself to others. So in this way, 
In practice, there will be times that it, it seems very similar to the way Christians live. And it will often seem to be more ethical than the hypocrisy of Christians. And yet it is very different than the ways of Jesus. It is incredibly different than the ways of Jesus. And one could ask, does it have enough stability to not venture into selfishness over time? So when I talked about Christian nationalism, I spoke of how conservative Christianity, and I use the word con conservative. Um, you notice how dark it's gotten in this room as I've talked about secular humanism? Like, where is the sunlight? Okay. When I use the terms conservative and uh, liberal, I'm not using those terms politically. I don't even know what any of that means anymore, but I'm using it like biblically and theologically. So conservative Christians are often tempted by Christian nationalism, and I spoke about the reasons why a couple of weeks ago. In similar fashion, though, liberal Christianity can be a gateway to secular humanism because one of the main hallmarks of secular humanism is this posture of suspicion. And liberal Christianity often has a posture of suspicion, specifically towards long-held beliefs about God's role in creation, the idea of sin, the continued relevance of the Bible, the fairness of divine judgment, the nature of the atonement at the cross, and the physical reality of the resurrection. Those are all things I love to talk about forever. We've talked about those things here. But much of liberal Christianity practices default suspicion towards those things. Even if they believe in those things, it's, it's a very torn type, type of belief. And therefore, there can often be a link or at least a gateway between liberal Christianity and secular humanism. It reminds me of the famous summary from H. Richard Niebuhr about liberal Christianity in the 50s where he said, he sums it up this way, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment by the work of a Christ without a cross. And, and so it, it, it kind of neuters the stability while it's trying to offer some type of framework. And whatever that is, it's, it's not the God of the Bible, and it's not the Christianity of the early church. So for those of us who have sympathies with the liberal streams of the faith, you may have sympathies with secular humanism, and by that I mean it's probably a temptation for you. So picture who you want to go out to dinner with on a Friday night, a secular humanist or a Christian nationalist. Well, whoever you, some of you are like, that's the easiest question he's ever asked me. But... Uh, Whatever your answer is, is probably your temptation. Because I have an answer to that question, and it reveals, it reveals a temptation. I mean, some of you are like, I'm introverts, I don't go out to dinner, fix that one, right? But um, that probably reveals your temptation. You know, and interesting enough, when we talk about the demographics of these things, Christian nationalism trends male and white, and secular humanism trends male and white. I don't know what to make of all that, but uh, statistically, women are not as interested in either one of these things as, as men are. Okay. I'm almost done. So why is secular humanism a dangerous apostasy? First, in terms of human goals, it puts the emphasis on being nice and happy. While I like being happy and believe Jesus normally wants us to be nice, the Christian faith does not center on that. Instead, the Bible teaches us that our goal is to find forgiveness for our sin and the means, in this case the Holy Spirit, by which we can become that which we were created to be. Human flourishing, not just for ourselves, but for the world. Jesus puts it this way, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not just about being nice, but about being holy becoming like God. And it may involve our happiness. But more often than not, it doesn't. Because Jesus asked us, Jesus did not say, pick up your cross, follow me, and we will all be so happy. And he, he did not add that last part. Second, flowing out of this, secular humanism misunderstands human nature. We're not just physical beings. We're physical and spiritual beings. We have bodies, but we also have souls. We are embodied souls. We are more than just physical. We are spiritual as well. And to truly flourish, we must speak, seek not just 
physical health or emotional health or mental health, but we must seek spiritual health to be all that we are created to be, to truly flourish. So secular humanism does not offer a satisfactory framework then for how we're meant to live if it misunderstands our fundamental human nature. Third, secular humanism teaches that our death is the end of our lives. There is no flourishing beyond your life, just the memories and legacies you leave. And while Christians do value those memories and values those legacies, we say there is more. Your life goes on after your death. Therefore, secular humanism gives a very underwhelming answer to the problem of death. And then last, fourth, secular humanism rejects the resurrection of Jesus and believes that Jesus is still dead. Someone hid the body. Someone lost the body. They got the story wrong. We got the wrong version of the gospel. Whatever it is, Jesus is dead. And in contrast, we believe Jesus is alive. We believe Jesus conquered death. And in the, desert, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we find the heart of the gospel. So secular humanism contradicts the gospel, not at the periphery, at the very core, at the very core. As I've read and studied Christian nationalism and secular humanism over the summer and early fall, a song kept playing in my mind, and this may sound funny to some of you, and it reveals the age in which I went to high school and college. But do you remember in, in the mid-90s, uh, the singer-songwriter Jewel, and she came out with this, this song, um, Who Will Save Your Soul? And, and I'm not, I didn't text Jewel this week to find out the reason why she wrote the song, but um, it was in my head all week. Who will save your soul? Because I look at Christian nationalism and I think, but who will save your soul? No country can do that. And I look at secular humanists and I say, but who's going to save your soul? Because you do have a soul and you can't save it on your own. We're called to resist these temptations, but even more, we are called to evangelize those that have fallen into these temptations. And some of you are thinking, this is the last thing I would ever want to talk about with anybody on a Friday night, okay? And yet, we're not called to just sit off the back and say, well, that's interesting, or that's crazy, or whatever. Why did I get interested in this? Because I have friends and family members that are in these camps, and I love them. And let's look around. We're tempted by these things, too. And it's not to have a posture of anger, it's to have a posture of compassion and say, this is not the gospel. And we must be people that evangelize, primarily with our witness, with our lives. So I'll close with my own paraphrase of our closing reading from 1 Corinthians. So this is my paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 1, 18-24. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are Christian nationalists and secular humanists. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Christian nationalists demand a return to power, and secular humanists look for material wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Christian nationalists and foolishness to secular humanists. But to those of us who have been called, both conservatives and liberals, this is Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Like anyone, there are days I still struggle with temptation and doubt. But I'm not 50-50 on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm all in.
As we get ready for communion this morning, I'll read from Luke 22. When the time came, Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles joined him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I tell you, I won't eat it until it is fulfilled in God's kingdom. After taking a cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I won't drink from this fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, This cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there are times that we, we struggle with, with belief. And yet, Lord, we are thankful for the mercy that, that you have shown us. Lord, that the mercy uh, that you have shown since the days of the garden. Uh, Lord, when, when you looked at Adam and Eve... Um, and you made clothes for them because you knew that that what was coming was going to be hard. Lord, that the mercy that, that you showed uh, on, on your people all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, Lord, and, and that uh, through that mercy you, you, you sent your son to us uh, to, to break those systems uh, of disbelief, uh, Lord, to, to conquer uh, that brokenness once and for all. Lord, we, we confess that, that we, we believe that your son came for us, uh, that he suffered and died for us on the cross, uh, that his body was broken for us, that his blood washes us clean. Lord, we believe that uh, they laid him in a tomb, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, and that he will come again to us one day. Lord, we long for the day when all of your people can be together again. Lord, be with us as we take this communion this morning in that memory, Lord, of the things that have been done for us and the things that are coming. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen. God was pleased 
through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and to despise things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You pray with me. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you for this time we've had together this morning to worship you, to encourage one another, <clears throat> just to take a pause in our daily lives and remember your son. Help us to remember our purpose on this earth as we go about our daily lives, as we face just the inevitable pressures and demands that will surely be coming our way this week. <clears throat> At Akron, we have many families going through tough times right now, whether it's dealing with illness, um, broken relationships, loneliness, school pressure, caring for aging parents, or just missing our college kids. Life um, can be so hard sometimes, and I pray for blessings and strength for all of us, uh, but especially for those of us that are struggling right now. <clears throat> I pray that you will be with us as we go back into the world this week. Uh, just show us ways that we can serve others and ways that we can be a light in our schools and our work and in our families. In your son's name I pray. Lasso was a real person and not just a fictional character. I think it'd be fun to go out to dinner with him. Does that make me a secular humanist? Anyways, we have a couple birthdays this week. Um, October 7th, Theo Ashford is six. Uh, so Theo at fist bump received more. And October 7th, Judas Sullivan is 11. I don't think Judas here this morning. I think they used to go to the early service, but when you see him, until I'm at birthday as well. We've got about three weeks to get yourself in shape for, uh, to get yourself in dodgeball shape for the, uh, the approaching on Saturday, October the 23rd dodgeball tournament at Siloam. Um, if you would like to take, uh, to join the team, see Clay or Marion Jones for details. Coming up uh, at Cedars 11 on State Park, November 12th through the 14th, we're having our first in-person retreat since spring of 2019. As usual, the, uh, the talented Bob Hoskins is, has, uh, has designed the t-shirts and has put the order in. So uh, we hope to see everybody there if you can and mark the calendars. Small groups, we do have small groups today. Uh, you can see the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the dates for the rest of the fall. Um, we do not have Sunday evening service at the building until further notice. And this Wednesday is the Brown Bag Gathering at the Conways. Uh, bring your dinner to chair for fellowship and depot from 5.30 to 7 if, if you can make it. We've seen an email about Room in the Inn. 
this uh, for this season. Um, it is beginning on November 1st, was fast approaching. Unlike past years, although I think last year they, they did go to the, to the new protocol, uh, we are having room in the end at the room in the end campus instead of here at the church. Um, it's right around the corner, so it's, a, it's pretty easy and close. Um, it probably is going to be on Monday, Mondays this year, not Sundays. Um, if you have any, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's all look, if you have a preference of those, kind of let me know. I, there's a lot of conversation going on, so um, if you have a preference, it may stay on Monday as well. We can probably do either. So I'll see Paul if you have any questions or anything you'd like to know about that. Let's see, a sign-up list will be emailed soon. Coming up on Sunday, October 24th, there is the, Paul, the, the fall bonfire costume party at the Deloney's from 3.30 to 6.30. Kind of replacing what we've been doing at Don Jennings the last few years, so that's always been fun. And Jill's house at Camp Winter Wagon, December 3rd through 5th for anybody 16 and up. Need to be vaccinated, but um, if that's something that you'd like to do, CJP, um, it's been a, a blessing for those who've done it in the past. And let's continue to pray for those on our list here. Uh, Christy Wagner continuing prayers for TBI recovery. Uh, Jason Perez, the Benitez family, uh, recovering from COVID. And those that have been on our list for a while in cancer treatment Joyce Rutledge, Marion Corley. Uh, James Spivey, Nancy, Shelley, Trudy, Aiden, Brett, and Skyler. Let's continue to be uh, to, to pray for our missionaries here in the United States and abroad. Is there anything else that I'm leaving out or that's been left out? Coffee downstairs, uh, fellowship, and class afterwards. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash Thanks again for joining us. God bless.